Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Tuesday, October the 18th. This is episode 765 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to do kind of a fun topic today. We're going to talk about useful uh, small animals, small livestock around the homestead. And, uh, you know, it'll be some really cool stuff today. And the reason I'm doing this, I'll elaborate more in just a minute, but times are getting tough out there. And the problems that I've been forecasting, their, their fruition is accelerating. And we're going to have some dark moments. And my belief is, though, that we need to stay positive. We need to stay... Uh, highly attuned to what we can actually do versus what we should be f- afraid of. And we need to have some fun too. And I'm going to have to go into some dark areas in the coming uh, months and years. I-, I really am. And some of the things I've been talking about that I think people have like intellectually agreed with are going to become functional realities for them. But I need to bring, if I'm going to tell you that stuff, I need to tell you the solution. And I need to bring some entertainment value and some joy and some fun as well. And what's more fun than little critters running around in the backyard? So we're going to talk about that today from a variety of ways. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as it might be, Berkey water filtration systems. And, uh, you know, you can get a Berkey from a lot of different people. When I was at the, uh, the uh, Self-Reliance Expo, uh, there were a lot of booths with Berkey stacked up in them. But you know what I saw? I saw Jeff sell out at both expos. And do you know why? It's not just because he advertises here, that's for sure. If it was, I'd, I'd jack his rates up. I might do that anyway this year, Jeff, if you're out there listening today. Um, but uh, the reason is because of the level of service. Uh, he's built a reputation both in our community and in many other communities as being the guy that if something goes wrong, he's going to make it right. He's going to fix it. And because we rely on human systems like the United States Mail to do things in this country, sometimes stuff will go wrong. So what you need when you're dealing with a company, especially a small business, is you need someone that's going to make things fixed if they get broken. That's Jeff. That's why I recommend that he is the guy you deal with to get your Berkey filtration system. And odds are he won't have to do anything. But if he does, he'll be there. And I can attest to that personally because I've talked to people who he's been there for. I'll also tell you he has some other really great prepper items. Again, you can check his website out at directive21.com. Next up today, shelfreliance.com. Notice I said a shelf like you put stuff on versus self like you yourself because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions uh, with some of the best systems I've ever seen for eating what you store and storing what you eat. Automatic uh, canned food rotation systems, big systems like the harvest systems, and smaller systems like the consolidator systems. Check them out. They're also the producer of the Thrive brand of long-term storage foods, the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever eaten, stuff that I'd be happy to eat on a daily basis. If nothing else, go over there and get a few cans of their pineapple. And get a few more than you think you need. Because when you open the can of pineapple and you eat it in its free-dried state, you're going to be like, this is like pineapple candy. 
And uh, it's a great nutritious thing to have as a dessert or a snack. And even with the new paleo stuff I've been talking about, hey, it would be part of a paleo trail mix. So check out Shelf Reliance for all that cool stuff. Next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, uh, and the forum. Make sure you check out the gear shop. Uh, some of you guys have been asking me, when are the new video, when are you going to start doing more videos? When are you going to start doing more videos? I have a listener today who is, uh, going to meet with us up at the house that's going to become sort of our, uh, part-time videographer. And, uh, that's going to help us. It's just, uh, it's editing that kills me on time. So we're working with, uh, a listener that we can maybe pay on a part-time basis to, uh, to film and edit video for us and try to get more video up for you guys. Try to get, you know, three, four or five videos up a week, maybe at least two or three. Uh, so that's coming. So keep, uh, up with the YouTube channel. And if you're not a subscriber yet, get over to YouTube, become our subscriber. And remember, when you subscribe to a channel, you can get email updates. Make sure you select that option. That way you'll know whenever I put up a new video. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, if you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, I will give you a special national service discount. Just email me before you join with the details of your service, the email address to email me for everybody, for anything, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, folks, again, I'll, I'll reiterate this. I say this once in a while. If you want to get in touch with me, the forum with private messages and Facebook with messages and YouTube with men. No, 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 no. The one thing that I pay attention to every single day and go through every single day and do my best to respond to because responding to it takes the least amount of effort on my end is email. I don't have a special private secret super duper email for friends only. All my email goes to one place. It is jack at the survival podcast dot com. With that, We've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Oh, no, one more thing. I want to remind you guys, uh, the 22nd is the last day of the bulk ammo contest. Four days left. Get out there and uh, give it a shot, man. All you do is go by their website, pick a product, ask a question, full details. There will be a link in the show notes today for that. But they're giving away a ton of free ammo, so get over to BulkAmmo.com and enter that contest. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I kind of want to point this out. I... I just did a show about, actually I did two shows, uh, Downward Class Migration and the Current and Future State of the Economy. I did the back-to-back. I know those were some dark days. Uh, I also know that a lot of you were actually inspired by them. Uh, a lot of you took those shows and you went out and you shared them with friends. And you said, look, man, you got to listen to what this guy's saying. It's making sense. And uh, you need to uh, shore up your life, and people need to hear this message. And it's true. And if that wasn't true, I wouldn't talk about that stuff, right? In fact, I, I would tell you this. I think one of the things that's made Survival Podcast the success that it's become is that my choice of topics is always about what I feel people really need to hear at the moment based on my life and my interactions with you. It's not so much what people want to hear that I say. It's what I think people need to hear at a given time. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people email me or meet me in person to say, you know, I was just dealing with this issue and I was just thinking, God, I wish, and the next day it showed up. And I guess with enough listeners, that's become somewhat of coincidence, but it still feels kind of cool when it happens. So these topics that I come up with, especially the dark stuff about the future of the economy, I don't talk about them for shock value or because I think it'll get everybody fired up and sharing the show. I talk about it because I feel it's needed. Well, I also feel that we need... Uh, certain things in our lives beyond just food and water and security and energy, you know, our survival needs. We need some entertainment value and we need hope. And we need positive actions that we can take. And I think that it's really possible 
for us to change America back to a nation of small farmers, where even if a person's a computer programmer or an accountant or somebody that works as a dental assistant or fixes bicycles, that everybody on some level is a farmer. And farming takes on two major aspects, plants and animals. And I guess funguses could be a third one, and you know we could get into whether bees or animals or insects. But in reality, it's either something that grows in the dirt or something that walks around on the dirt or crawls through the dirt. It's either alive um, and kept alive through solar energy, or it's alive and kept alive through consuming other things that have their initial sources of solar energy, plant and animal. And let's let it, let it be that. And I think that we focus an awful lot on the plant side. Because, let's face it, as long as we can water a plant and give it sun and nutrition, it takes care of itself. Animals require additional care. At least some of them do. And animals also require us to do something that we don't really think about doing when it's a tomato. right? You understand a tomato is a living thing. It's alive. When we pull it off a branch and cut it in half, we've killed it. It's no longer alive. The seed in it is still alive and can reproduce. We talked about that with paleo stuff and how it can pass through an animal that consumes it and actually grows somewhere else. Um, and it's designed to be consumed because that's part of how it reproduces. But it, there's no remorse. I don't know about you. If you have remorse because you cut a tomato and put it in your salad, I really think maybe you need to talk to a doctor that works on heads, right? I mean, we just don't have that. But even something insig- you know seems insignificant, uh, to most people on a daily basis, if you drive by and notice a chicken, you don't worry about its welfare. But when it's your chicken and, you know, it's time for that chicken to go and, and, and be graduated into becoming fried chicken or chicken soup or whatever, and you have to cut its head off, or more accurately, if you do it right, put him into a cone upside down and slice into his, uh, his jugular and carotid artery and vein, um, then, you know, there's usually some remorse there. And I think there should be. And I think this shies away some people from keeping animals. I don't think that it should, especially if you're not a vegetarian. If you're going to go to the store and get a chicken nicely packaged up, somebody did that job. And the reality is that the way that things are done in the mass-produced food market today, somebody did it with a lot less humanity than you would. And somebody probably gave that animal a lot less dignity and a lot less quality of life than you would. So I think that moving into the world of meat uh, from a production standpoint, is something that we need to consider doing. Anybody that says, I just can't do it, I understand I'm not going to push you there. But I also want to tell you there's other reasons to keep animals on a homestead, and some of the things that I'm going to talk about today are things we probably never eat as well. So um, I want this show to be for everybody, but I do want to bring the reality of meat to it. And today's show is called Useful Small Animals for the Homestead. So these are animals that have a use. That use could be being cut up and sautéed in a great, you know, uh, greatly uh, seasoned uh, uh, skillet, nice cast iron, braised, and then and then cooked slow. And I've got some nice, wonderful succulent rabbit. But it could also be a, a useful from a completely different standpoint. Right? It does not have to end in the animal's death. It could be something as simple as using their manure. Uh, or with poultry using their eggs or, or what have you. So there's a lot of other functional uses. And what I wanted to do was start out with, instead of just a list of animals, what makes an animal useful? What what are the things that I look at when I'm evaluating whether or not I want to make an animal part of my homestead? Or even like you know certain things I'm not going to keep on my homestead. Um, ghosts and sheep are on the list. I really don't have, I, if I wanted to just bring feed in, 
Keep them penned up. I could do a goat or two. Uh, really, you need to do two goats. We'll get to that when we get to them. But it's just not right for my homestead. So it's not just about whether or not it makes sense for me. It's about whether it makes sense for someone else, you know. And maybe uh, with some clearing and some stuff I do at time, maybe I move into a state where those make sense. But when it comes down to it, what I want to know first is what useful functions does this animal perform? First and foremost, in my mind, I'll admit, is the production of food. And that can be primary or secondary food production. Uh, primary food production is, you know, a rabbit. You know, we cervically dislocate him and skin him and feed his entrails to the dogs, which are also on the list, and, uh, and we cook them up. And when we're done cooking them, we take the bones, and maybe the bones from two or three of them, and we put them into a great big stock pot, and we make a big giant pot of rabbit stock, and we use that for other cooking. And that animal's produced food for us, right? So that's, that's a direct food production model. The same might be true of a duck uh, or a quail. Uh, or, or a small swine. Uh, all these are animals I'm going to talk about today. But that's a direct food production. An indirect food production is if I have a goat and it produces milk, and then I use that milk to make cheese, I have an indirect food production. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm not going to talk much about chickens when I get to my list of animals today. And you might be like, wow, you mean it's useful animals? We're not going to include the chicken because the chicken does everything. I'm going to give the chicken a mention here in the beginning because I can basically show you uh, how the chicken fills all these functions, and that'll take care of the chicken. I also look at it this way. It's the first thing everybody thinks of. So I want to go into some things that maybe you hadn't thought of today. But the chicken produces food by two models, with an egg and is the chicken itself, right? The next thing that, you know, I want to know about an animal, to produce any of what I call a functional byproduct. And I don't mean waste. Manure is, is useful waste. That's the next one on the list, so we'll hold off on that. A functional byproduct would be if I grow sheep, and I can shear them, I have wool. Right? So that can be spun. There's a lot of different things that can be done with that. But a rabbit, right? a rabbit produces fur. So even if I'm using that rabbit for direct food, I can take that fur, I can tan the hide. There's a lot of things that can be done with that. A lot of people that breed rabbits skip that. It's a lot of work for a small hide, and unless you're breeding a particular breed that's particularly beautiful or has a particularly maybe a little bit tougher skin, it's usually a low return of investment. But also thinking about moving toward a place where we have to provide more and more of our own things, uh, rabbit hide can be quite useful. Um, I'll tell you what, there's very few things that are actually warmer. So there's a lot of ways that a rabbit hide can be used. We could say the same thing about a chicken, though. You know all those feathers that we throw away? There's uses for feathers. And it's up to us to determine what those uses are going to be. But I want to know, does this animal have any useful byproduct? If I were growing deer, right, if I were growing venison, and I were growing it for meat, now I'm, it won't work for me, not even on my list today, uh, other than maybe you could say that they're uh, encouraged wildlife that we'll talk about. We're talking about smaller animals today, though. But if I were growing deer or elk, um, and I were growing them season to season, and they shed their antlers. The antler is a useful byproduct. It's actually a very expensive byproduct. It's a very cash-rich byproduct. If I were growing buffalo for slaughter uh, as like meat production, I still have the hide, which is actually very valuable. I have the horns, which have value. So what other byproducts does the animal produce? And the byproduct doesn't always require the death of the animal. Uh, I can collect feathers from animals that just molt. I can collect things like antlers from an animal that simply sheds, or I can shear an animal for its fleece, its wool. So what 
will that animal do for me as a byproduct? The next one is, does it produce useful waste? And almost every animal you can think of, other than cats and dogs on your homestead, produces useful waste. The only question we have is, do we have to compost it or can we use it directly? Is it a hot or a cool manure? Uh, an example of a hot manure would be poultry manure. Uh, chicken manure is very, very hot if you want to look at it that way. It needs to be composted. It, it will burn uh, your plants if it's used in a direct application. Uh, if we take rabbit manure, it's a cool manure. We take rabbit pellets and just keep tossing them right into the garden. So does the animal produce useful waste? And sometimes the useful waste alone makes it worth keeping the animals. Marjorie, who's very big on rabbit production for meat, said if she wasn't eating rabbits, she'd probably still keep a few just for their manure. Because it's a great fertility add to the soil. So there's, there's some, some thoughts there. The next one is, does it perform a useful function? And again, our chicken that's not on the list today, because everybody always thinks of him, is a perfect example of a useful function. Chickens scratch and peck. So I can take chickens into an area that's overrun with weeds or overrun with pests. I can confine them there with something like a chicken tractor or some sort of other movable paddock system. And I can put that chicken there for a day or two, and they will clean things up for me. right? So they will perform for me a useful function. If I sequester them into an area where they have access inside the greenhouse but can't mess everything up and contain themselves and their mess in that area in the evenings, a, a small flock of chickens will actually help keep my greenhouse warm. And they will have an output of CO2, which will actually help improve the health of my plants. So they'll perform a useful function That way, a dog might keep away intruders. That's a useful function. So a useful function beyond a functional byproduct giving me food or giving me useful waste. What do they do when I introduce them into the system? And the reality is we have to think about that, especially from a permaculture standpoint. All creatures will perform functions in an ecosystem. Every single function they perform is useful. The, the problem is that most of us have a finite amount of land and a desire for a certain number of animals, and if that function that would be normally useful is performed in too small of an area, too often the function becomes damaging. So if we take a hog and we put him on one acre today and one acre tomorrow and another acre the next day, and I had a 10-acre system and I had one or two small hogs, and I move them each day into a new system, they would actually make that pasture better. If I put two hogs on a half acre and I leave them there for a week, they'll damn near destroy it. So what was a useful function becomes a damaging function if not properly managed. So basically I have to look at everything the animal does from a behavioral standpoint. And I have to evaluate whether I want to contain or distribute that function, and how I can mitigate its damage, and I can enhance its, uh, it, 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 its usefulness. How can I make it work for me? Uh, hogs can destroy land. Hogs can improve land. It's all about their application. We'll talk about that more in a bit. The next one, and this is one that gets overlooked, it, does it provide entertainment? Um, I'll tell you what. I like to watch chickens chase each other around. It's kind of cool. Uh, I like when you catch like a big like tomato hornworm, and you throw it into a group of chickens and watch them fight over it. It's entertainment. And we talked about entertainment here and there, about you know creating entertainment caches and things like that, whether it's movie or video or music or what have you, or things that we you know, instruments that we can play. And the, the importance, if we end up in a long-term scenario where we are basically staying home more than we're going out, 
for whatever reason, whether it's a natural disaster or just the reality of harshness of life, that we need entertainment. Well, our animals can be a source of entertainment, and it's up to you how you view that entertainment. Uh, I get entertainment from simple things, uh, like petting my dog. I find it, I find my dog very entertaining. Um, I find my dog at times annoying with his toy, but also very entertaining with his toy. Uh, I, I have a tire toy for him that I throw down the road and I hold it so I can spin it so it rolls and watching him chase that thing is, it provides entertainment value. Um, it, I'm going to talk about pigeons and quail today and as a, as a kid, uh, we didn't raise pigeons, but my great uncle, one house up the street, raised pigeons. And going up there and watching the pigeons fly around the coop to me was entertaining. Uh, watching them, you know, hatch, you know, their young and feed their young was also entertaining. So I think that there is a lot of entertainment value in our animals if we put them into the system properly and control them so they become a functional part of the system versus a destructive part of the system and so that we minimize their care requirements so they're as largely self-sufficient as possible, then we get maximum entertainment value out of them. Uh, the next one is, does it support other systems? And that's kind of a combination of everything else I've already said. But if I have an animal that produces useful waste, it supports a garden, right? So uh, I'm going to save that one because there's going to be a lot of that in the thing as I go down the list. But the first one, and when you talk about useful small animals for the homestead, people always think rabbits, ducks, chickens, stuff we can eat or produces food. One of the things that we tend to overlook and one of the most useful animals we can have at our homestead is a dog. Uh, first and foremost, a dog is a, p a part of your security system. A dog will chase off other animals. Uh, a dog will alert you when something else is out there. A dog will create noise when there's an intruder around. Even a little Pekingese that the intruder's not afraid of, they're afraid of being detected. So the dogs have a certain amount of security. Now, how much value a dog brings to a system is based on its training. Stranger tries to get into my house, I'm guaranteeing you they're going to have 130 pounds of German Shepherd latched on their arm. It's at, it's going to happen. That's that's who the dog is. Before we had Max, you get a black Labrador that may or may not bite, but just kind of nippy and barky and upset. You know, so the, how much security you get is dependent on the animal and how he's trained. But there are certain animals that perform outstanding functions. Uh, if uh, if you have a homestead where you can hunt. You can have a dog that's a great uh, hunting companion, whether it's a bird dog like a Springer or a Brittany. And, and Brittany's, to me, are one of the most uh, versatile uh, dogs you can get your hands on. They really are. From a bird standpoint and, and, and other things they're able to do, the Brittany was actually originally bred as a poacher's dog in France, uh, where the poacher would have to sneak onto the nobleman's land because only the nobleman had a right to hunt. And so the dog had to be versatile. Some other versatile dogs from a hunting standpoint are a feist, uh, and a cur. Those are both very, very versatile hunting dogs. One of the most overlooked dogs and almost out of, uh, you know, it's almost been, been lost to time is the old Scotch Collie. The old Scotch Collie, not the, the lasting one with the long nose, a little bit shorter nose. Those dogs are intelligent and great working dogs, great security systems. Uh, so those are great dogs. Another great dog is the Pyrenees. A Pyrenees will lay its life down to save a chicken. Uh, if you have like small livestock and you're worried about dogs eating your, you know, you put them in the system together and they're supposed to interact and the way that they're going to interact is your dog's going to eat your chickens. Uh, a Pyrenees properly trained, uh, and a Pyrenees lab cross is another great, uh, dog for this, will defend the animals on the homestead when properly trained, will give its own life before it will let something harm the animals there. 
Well, that's just how they are. That's what they're supposed to do. So there's a few different dog breeds, and just wanted to kind of get you thinking that your dog, and, and most of us probably are dog people that listens to this show, I think, especially once we get out of an apartment and into a place where we can have a dog uh, and, and, and have a dog be part of our system, uh, your dog's part of your system. You need to think about how he fits in there. You know, he doesn't produce useful waste. Dog waste is not good for your plants, folks. Uh, neither is cat waste. Uh, I'm going to throw cats in even though they're not on the list. Uh, our cats, specifically my outdoor cat, uh, Ralph, is absolutely dominating uh, any attempt at rodents to establish themselves in our area. Uh, cats will go out and eat a mouse a day happily even if you're feeding them. So cats have a place as a predator and, and rodent control as well. Next up, though, is rabbits. Rabbits are like the next big thing for me. And I'm waiting until spring to do this. I'm going to build out their hutches and everything this winter. I'm going to do all of that on YouTube and document it for you guys. I have some innovative ideas on how to do that and make basically the living area the same as everybody else does because that's proven dimensions and things like that. But I have some innovative ideas on how to make feeding and watering and temperature controls more automated for them. And you bring some permaculture things into that. Um, but to me, rabbits are the best, absolutely the best meat animal uh, you can get your hands on as a homesteader. Uh, I think that if you think about it this way, if you go out and get a steer, a young, you know, a calf, uh, a calf, and you're going to raise it as a meat steer, if you raise it over a season, you're going to get about 400 pounds of meat. That's a lot of beef. Two does and a buck. And in a breeding operation of rabbits run properly at optimum can produce as much as 600 pounds of meat in a season for you. So those three rabbits can give you more meat production than a steer with a whole lot less input. Now let's say that completely falls on its face, right? That's a statistic that was in this month's edition of Mother Earth News. And we all know that authors writing articles like that put things in the best case scenario to make their point. So let's say it fails by half, and two bucks and a doe produce 300 pounds of meat in a season, 100 pounds less than a steer. It's still a lot less work for almost the same amount of meat, and we could easily add a third doe to that mix, can we not? And at that point, we go back to the 300 for two, now we're at 450. So three does and a buck, more than raising a steer. A lot less input, a lot easier to raise a lot of our own food for our rabbits. Uh, the article also mentioned that pellets bring them to, to uh, slaughter size faster and all, but let's, let's look at it this way. If I want to eat a rabbit a week, how fast do I need to bring my bunnies up to slaughter size? You know, and how many do I really need breeding to do 50 rabbits, 52 rabbits a year? And a lot of people, especially if you're not a family of four, if you're a family of two, one rabbit a week is pretty much kind of going to do it for you, isn't it? Do you really want to eat rabbit three nights a week? Though you want other things in variety in your, in your, in your diet. So, uh, I think that, you know, we can actually scale that back and not breed them as heavily as, as some people would need to. Um, I think that if we look at, let's say, an average rabbit, uh, will produce for you, uh, at, at slaughter weight. You know, you're looking at four to six pounds. Um, and you're going to get, let's, let's just say a 50% uh, yield. Some people do better than that, but a 50% meat versus body weight issue, about three pounds. So if we just want to do a rabbit a week, and we go on a three-pound meat per rabbit, it's 150 pounds of rabbit meat a year. And that means for two people sitting down, 
you're looking at a pound and a half of meat. That's a lot of meat. That's that's more than a serving. Uh, that's leftovers. That's uh, uh, making other things with rabbit. Uh, and still for you know two people having a rabbit a week, uh, even a family of four, uh, a three pound yield. Uh, when we look at dividing that up against four people, uh, we come out with uh, three pounds of, uh, or sorry, three quarters of a pound each. That's a serving for four. So if we just want to do one rabbit a week for a family of four, uh, we can we can do that with a very limited breeding cycle. We also should look at what it takes to make a pound of rabbit meat versus, let's say, a pound of beef. Because it's not just about what comes out, it's about what goes in, how much effort we have to do. I've read all different figures of how many pounds it goes in for how many pounds it comes out. But basically, the overall rule of thumb is if we were to feed a rabbit and a cow the exact same amount of food, the rabbit will produce about six pounds of meat and a cow will produce a pound. Now, obviously, we'd have to have a big rabbit to get six pounds of meat out, but it's a ratio thing. So the same amount of feed given to a group of rabbits, let's say two, and that amount of feed is going to produce me two three-pound meat yields, so six total pounds, that amount of same amount of food given to a cow would produce a one-pound meat yield. So there's a very high yield input versus output with rabbits. Um, as far as like breeds, I don't want to go. De- I mean, I could do a whole show just on rabbits, but like the two go-to breeds are New Zealands and Californians. And then there's all kinds of great, you know, heirloom rabbits and the American chinchillas and the uh, Champagne d'Argent and all these Palominos and cool stuff like that. Uh, but everybody that I've talked to that's raised rabbits for any period of time will tell you that it probably makes sense to get your feet wet with a proven meat breed like New Zealand or Californian. And uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm going to recommend. And I'm going to probably start out with New Zealand's myself. Uh, they're, they're, you know, adult size is about 8 to 12 pounds. So they're a good, hardy animal. Uh, they handle heat fairly well. They handle cold fairly well. And they average like 8 to 10 bunnies a litter. So I, I can get my goal of a rabbit a week for our for our homestead very very easily with a couple does in a buck. I'll actually have to limit their breeding uh to to keep them that way. The big thing with rabbits and many other small animals though is there's no rule that you have to slaughter them at any particular time. They get bigger, they get tougher, right? And they eat more and you have to keep feeding them. But the reality is if I slaughter a steer today, I have three, four hundred, five hundred pounds of meat, depending on the size of the animal, that I have to deal with right now. If I go out and I slaughter a rabbit today, uh, I can, you know, deal with that amount of meat very, very easily, and I can then basically wait till next week to slaughter my next rabbit, and all I have to do is keep feeding him. I've also I was kind of touched on the whole pellet thing. I think you should do some pellet feeding with your rabbits. I think it's going to be necessary, but I think it's amazing what happens if we actually take space and allocate it to grow feed with. I have a very large flat area, easy to irrigate, easy to maintain, right out my back door. And that most people would turn into a typical lawn. I am going to turn it in a, into a rotational pasture for harvesting, uh, for my rabbits. And it probably will kind of go two ways. Sometimes I'll actually harvest the food and bring it to them. Sometimes I may actually track their rabbits. That's something that you can do. It takes a little bit more effort than chickens because rabbits can dig holes, but, uh, it, it can be done very, very successfully, especially with some secondary confinement systems in case they get out. Uh, so just, some stuff on, on rabbits there. The next one I think this gets highly overlooked is small swine. Uh, there is a breed of pig 
that in the United States we have decided is like the pig dog, right? He's a pig that you keep in your house in suburbia, and you pet him, and you pat him, and he learns tricks, and he's called a potbelly pig. And we look at that potbelly pig, and we say, well, that pig is not a meat animal. He's a pet. Well, he's only a pet because somebody decided that it was cool to market him as a pet to Americans and Canadians where we have so much meat around us that we don't look at a pig and go, hmm, 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 pork. Let me tell you what the potbelly pig really is. It is a primary production for meat systems in Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. It's what its purpose was. It's why he was domesticated in the first place. They are generally slaughtered at around 60 pounds of weight or less. Uh, they'll grow up to maybe 120 pounds, and you can let them grow that big if you want to. In Vietnam, a lot of them are slaughtered at you know maybe 40 to 45 pounds. The pork is tender. It's very very fat rich, and and you know like I said, fat is an important part of our dietary requirements, no matter what the government keeps telling you. And I think they make a lot of sense. There's something you want to really be careful with, even these smaller ones. Uh, unless you're feeding them a ton of supplemental feed and constantly controlling where they're going and what they're doing, if you're going to put them on pasture, you're looking about one pig to an acre. Now, that doesn't mean that a couple goats or something, a sheep can't go out there with them, but basically that's about your, your, your limit. They will continuously tear up systems. And when they do that, you have to understand that you're pulling the roots out. So it's not like just having it eaten. So if you're going to put Hogs and, and sheep together in a pasture, you need a mixture of pasture grasses that produce both by seed and by rhizome roots. Because the pigs are going to damage the roots and the sheep are going to eat the seed heads. So we need to, you know, kind of control these two things together and think about it. But I also think that potbelly pigs can be raised in kind of a hybrid system where they get some pasture time and some pig pen time, we'll call it that. And I think we can do that in a, in a way that's, that's quite enjoyable for the pig. I mean, if they can be kept as a pet in a house, right, then we can probably make them work in a homestead, and they are less damaging than conventional swine because they're smaller. In Vietnam, they don't really have them in pens at all. Uh, they, they control their population by eating them when there's too many, and they pretty much let them run around, and they pretty much fend for themselves, and they feed them, but they only feed them so they're trained to come back, so that they don't leave. So they feed them just enough to keep them domesticated and otherwise to let them run around. And when one's big enough, they, they kill them. And these people know their pigs. There's a really cool cooking show. And there's an episode where they talk about this particular breed of swine. Uh, and the guy cooks them. And it, the show's called Luke's Vietnam. It's on the cooking channel. Uh, if you have Dish Network or DirecTV or anybody that has the cooking channel, look up Luke's Vietnam and set your DVR for it. And eventually you'll catch that episode. He's done like two or three seasons now, but they do a lot of rebroadcasting, that type of thing. And it's pretty interesting the way people, you know, manage this meat production crop over there. Uh, nobody steals from anybody else. Everybody knows whose pig's whose, and they just kind of run around, and it, it's interesting. Uh, it takes a little bit more work to slaughter a pig, uh, butchering and killing, than it does a rabbit. If you're going to raise swine or anything of that size, uh, for slaughter, you may want to consider um, simply having somebody else do the work for you if you don't think you're cut out for it. It's not hard. It doesn't take much to learn. Uh, but pigs are intelligent creatures, and it's easy to grow attached to them. So it's something else you got to be concerned about. Let's move on to something totally different now. Squirrels, raccoons, possums, small wildlife in general. Now, you would th think most people view a squirrel or a raccoon as a pest. 
And I think that that's because, again, we don't realize things like useful functions and control and things like that. If you keep chickens, the raccoon can be your mortal enemy. His entire goal is to get into your coop and probably kill three of your chickens or more and take away one to eat. Because uh, this is what they do. And it's just a reality. And they are extremely good predators of chickens. They're extremely intelligent. They're good at opening things like doors and latches. So we really have to guard against them. But assuming they're guarded against what a raccoon is to me is a protein source. Uh, a full-grown raccoon uh, will weigh about, it's very, really variable. I mean, you could be eight, nine pounds for a female. It could be 30, 35 pounds for a really big male. Most of them, though, you're looking at kind of the, the eight to 20 pound range. So call it an aggregate average of 15 pounds. A 15 pound raccoon is going to yield about six to seven pounds of meat. Uh, that's more than two rabbits, right? So if there's raccoons in your area and you can get past the stigma and realize that they're actually a great protein source, raccoon is, is some of the best eating meat you can get your hands on, then you can go out and you can get, uh, you can start hunting them or you can trap them. And there's two ways that really makes us a trap raccoons. One is using a coil spring trap, leg hole trap, and the other one is using a, like a box trap. They become wise to the box traps. If you catch a raccoon in a box trap, if you don't want that raccoon coming back, you better kill that one. Uh, if you relocate them, understand you've given somebody else your problem. I want to kind of talk to you about that today, too, with trapping animals that are problem animals in live catch traps and relocating them. Uh, my problem with coil spring traps, leg hole traps, is not all the anti-trapper stigma that's out there and the PETA crap and everything. Leg hole traps will generally, when they when they get the animal by the leg, uh, that leg will go numb very, very quickly. But often it does do permanent damage. And releasing an animal from a leg hole trap can or cannot go well. And if you live in an area where people have cats uh, and you're out trying to trap coons, the, the, the bait is going to attract cats and you're going to end up with people's house cats in your leg hole traps. That's why I don't use them anymore. When I was a kid running a trap line, I was far enough out in the sticks that if there was a cat in that trap, it was a feral cat. And I actually never had to make the decision whether to let a feral cat go or not, and I really don't know what I would have done because I like cats. Uh, but in that case, the, the common sense tells you it's a feral cat. It probably needs to go. But I had no problem using leg holds out there. Right now, I'm worried about the neighbor's cat or my own cat getting into one of my leg hold traps, where if he gets in a box trap, hey, no big deal. I can get him out of there without any harm. So... Uh, the box traps, cage traps are, are very good for raccoons. And again, this doesn't have to be something we do a lot of, but I can tell you just by my night uh, camera activity on my game feeder, I've got a troop of about a dozen of them around. I can harvest those, uh, a few here and a few there, without no decline to the population. Things like squirrels we can set up, and we're going to be doing videos on this. I'm going to start building a lot of squirrel boxes and putting them out on my property to give the squirrels more nesting area. Uh, I have very little old timber in my area, so there's not a lot of nesting areas for gray squirrels. So I'm going to provide them nesting areas. Putting out some black oil sunflower feeders uh, will help supplement their feed, not provide. But just those two steps alone can increase the squirrel population. Now I can go out and harvest squirrels. Now, I'm not going to live on raccoon and squirrel. Right? If I harvest to that level on a five-acre plot, even if my neighbors aren't, I can really over-harvest if I'm trying to feed myself with it. But if I'm supplementing, you know, i got a rabbit a week, I've got uh, meat that I'm buying, one source or another, and then I add that to the mix. Do you see how it starts to really mitigate the need? And this was the thing, like, you know, I used to make a joke that when I was a kid we lived on deer meat. Well, we really did. We ate pork. We ate chicken. Uh, we ate, you know, all kinds of different stuff. 
But what I meant by that was we ate some deer meat just about all year. It would be, you know, like August-ish before you kind of use up the last bit of deer meat. And then, you know, you're kind of like October cannot get here fast enough. Well, a lot of these other things can be like that. It's not like you're living on them, but they're part of your regular diet. So squirrels, raccoons, and other small wildlife, my suggestion is that you look at them less as a pest, and especially if you have a larger plot of land, can you provide them what they need in the area where you're not cultivating stuff, kind of in your your zone 5 in the permaculture world, zone 4, zone 5, farm forestry stuff, Give them so much of what they need out there that they're less likely to become a problem. Use things like your dog to keep them away and then go out and sustainably harvest them. And I think a lot of people don't look at that component as a, as a piece of their homestead. And I think we should, even if it's public lands that are nearby that we can hunt or private lands that we have permission to hunt on, if it's walking distance or biking distance or even ATV distance uh, and we can use less than you know a quarter gallon of fuel in our ATV to get there and back or what have you, then they are part of the overall system. In an ideal situation, they're, they're on your own property and part of your system that way. They're also, you know, they, they spread out across the, the demographics. Um, I harvested squirrels in my backyard in Arlington, Texas with a, with a uh, beam and pellet gun. Whack! Dead squirrel. Right, And people say, oh, it's so cruel, he comes down there to eat the feeder. Well, he got to eat the feed for a full year, and I got a good meal out of him. Right, And that is a fair exchange. Squirrels are not a long-lived animal. They are, in a natural system, one of the most preyed-upon creatures in the world. Everything eats them. Snakes eat them. Uh, hawks eat them. I mean, you, coyotes, raccoons will kill squirrel, especially young squirrels. Uh, when they're still in the nest, if they get a chance to. Uh, so it's, it, they, they are a prey species. When we bring them into a suburban environment, uh, many of the things that prey on them simply can't get to them anymore. And then all of a sudden, we have an abundant population. You almost can't over-harvest squirrels because of the way they breed and reproduce. Uh, they don't have large litters, but they have multiple litters per season, and uh, one male will breed with as many females as he can find. They're basically tree rats. I mean, we can try to make them into something cute and fuzzy, but they're a tree rat. Now, that turns some people off of eating them. I'll tell you, if you're squeamish about eating squirrel or raccoon, give it a try. You'll be surprised. Squirrels very much like the dark meat from some, from some breeds of rabbit. Uh, very, very similar. If you had a piece of cottontail rabbit, wild rabbit, and squirrel side by side on a plate, cut into the same shape so you couldn't tell by dimensions what they were, and you blind taste tested them, uh, I would probably know the difference, but very few people could. Uh, since I've eaten both so much in my life, there is a difference, but it's very, very minor. Uh, we'll let that go now. Let's go to the next one, bees. Um, and I want to put masons and conventional both into this, this part of this list. There's a lot of people out there that want to grow bees for honey. You're going to have your, your apiary, and you're going to have your hives, whether they're top bar or conventional hives, and you're going to grow honey, and that's great. But then there's people out there that are scared of bees, uh, that don't use a lot of honey, that, frankly, that they would be better off to barter for the honey, maybe raise rabbits and trade a few rabbits for a few pounds of honey, uh, than grow bees themselves. There are people that uh, are allergic to bee sticks and would love to have bees, but just... It, you know, they don't want to up their odds of being stung. And most beekeepers will tell you, you're going to get stung. It's no big deal, but it's going to happen from time to time. 
Uh, bees are, are actually very, very docile creatures. You get honeybees on a flower, and when they're eating a flower, you can generally reach in and like kind of touch them on the back, and they just keep going on about their business. And, and, and uh, you know, they don't really, they're not really aggressive the way that I think people view them. When their hive is attacked, well, they're defending it. And that's what anybody would do. If somebody attacks your home, you would defend it. But there are people that just, for one reason or other, don't want conventional bees. Well, mason bees require no maintenance. You simply give them a place to, to breed and reproduce and be housed uh, with blocks with holes drilled in them is the basic way to do it. I won't go deep in that today. But they're a pollinator. So let's go look at bees, uh, both mason and conventional, and go back to our things that make an animal useful. Do they produce food? Conventional, yes. Mason, no. Do they have functional byproducts? Uh, bees produce wax and, and, and honeycomb. Uh, mason bees, not so much. Do they provide useful waste? Uh, not really. I, I don't think so. I, I don't know if anybody actually harvests honeybee manure or something like that. I don't know. But uh, conventional bees uh, do have other functional byproducts. Royal jelly, for instance, and bee pollen. Uh, so right now, the, the mason is not looking very good. Do they perform a useful function? Well, they're both pollinators. So the masons are a pollinator. Do they provide entertainment? Um, I think that mason bees are actually very entertaining to watch them coming and going from their little tubes. And they're very, very peaceful, even more peaceful than a honeybee. I've never known anybody stung by a mason bee. My understanding is they can sting. Uh, that if maybe you had a, a clover flower and there was a mason bee on there and you grabbed it and didn't know he was there, he would sting you. Uh, but I've never been stung by a mason bee. Uh, I've talked about him on the show. I've asked. I've never heard from anybody that's ever been stung by a mason bee. So it's, it's, it's not highly likely. If you've been stung by a mason bee, let me know. I'd like to know what, what did it take to get that little guy to sting you? I don't want to harm them, so I've never like tormented one to get them to sting me. But I have never been stung, and I don't know anybody personally or even secondhand that's been stung. But my understanding is they can sting. Um, so they do provide entertainment, and do they support other systems? Well, if you're a pollinator, you're supporting other systems. And what we have to start looking at with permaculture instead of this straight line relationship, this interconnected web. If I have something like clover and it's being pollinated and reproducing at a higher level by my mason bee, even though I don't eat clover, my rabbits do. Now, then my rabbits are producing waste, and I'm taking the waste, the rabbit pellets, and I'm putting them into my garden where I'm growing something I actually eat. And those three things that seem unrelated, because over in my garden, let's say I'm growing broccoli and kale and spinach and things like that, in the early spring when these masons are out, even before the honeybees get out in force, and I really don't need anything in the garden directly pollinated at that time. Maybe I have some fruit trees and stuff, but just seeing this relationship, this, the, the two sides are still supporting each other. So they're supporting other systems. And I think what happens is the more things we bring in, the more that happens, and it's up to us to discover where those support lines are. And we have to think unconventionally to find them. Next one I want to talk about today briefly is ducks. Ducks basically do a lot of the things chickens do, and in some ways, to me, ducks just have a better personality. I like ducks. Ducks are cool critters. I also look at it this way. It's actually really inexpensive for me to go buy chicken. Even... Pastured chicken is not that expensive. I can go buy uh, a nice pastured chicken from a local producer around here uh, for somewhere between 8 and $14, depending on the size of the chicken. Now, yes, I can go down to you know Kroger or what have you and buy mass-produced chicken, a whole chicken, for $4. So it does cost more to get that quality of meat. But I, it's not easy for me to go get duck, and when I can, it's expensive. 
So part of why I kind of leaning toward ducks for meat production over chickens is that duck meat's more expensive. Now, chickens and ducks both get a bad rap from somebody that wants to produce them for meat on a small homestead because, and this is where the person that's the big fan of rabbits is right, the rabbits will produce more meat for you with less input and less trouble. Uh, and if you wanted to eat a duck a week or a, a chicken a week, it's a lot more effort than a rabbit a week. And it's a lot more input, it's a lot more care, you got to buy a lot more feed, etc., etc., ad nauseum. But the reality is a small flock of ducks will, with a little pond will largely look after themselves. They'll lay eggs and they'll produce other ducks. They'll forage and they'll feed. And those ducklings can be slaughtered when they're about half grown all the way up to being full grown. All right. Um, if you eat two a month or 24 ducks, that'll pretty much keep uh, a small flock of ducks into a pop level of population control. A, a, a organically grown uh, Muscovy duck on the Internet today, full-grown drake, will cost you about 60 bucks to buy and have shipped to your house. So if you do two of those a month, that's $120 worth of duck meat. And all the things that go along with duck meat, like duck fat for frying things in, uh, and, and all the different things we can do with ducks, plus they will produce us eggs, and they will produce manure, and they have a useful function, and they support other systems. So to me, I like ducks for all of that. Moving on real quick, fish, uh, tilapia, catfish, trout, crayfish, and even frogs. If you can put in ponds, put in ponds. Uh, th probably the best return of investment you'll ever get with livestock is to put in a pond of a quarter acre or more, stock it with channel catfish, and provide supplemental feed to them. Uh, you pretty much don't have to do anything else. You can harvest them with a hook and line. Uh, and if you have a big enough space, you may get to a point where they're even reproducing for you, and they are perpetual, perpetual and sustainable. Uh, another thing that you can grow in a, your small ponds that will do very well for you are hybrid sunfish, kind of a green sunfish bluegill cross because they won't reproduce. The problem with sunfish in a pond, if they're reproducing and they're not heavily harvested, is they stunt the growth out very, very quickly. You end up with... 10,000 fish, two inches long. Now, there's another way to solve that without going to a hybrid situation with, uh, with, you know, like a, a cross, uh, a sterile cross or an all male cross, what have you. And that is, it's called a cast net. All right. It's called a piece of bread and a cast net. And the way that you control the population of sunfish in a, a pond like this, in addition to adding things like bass and catfish as predators, is you get a handful of little breadcrumbs and you throw them out there and they all start boiling. You train them to do this by feeding them once in a while. And when there's about a billion of those little guys in there, you throw a six-foot cast net over them and you pull them out and you shake them into a bucket and you do that a couple times and you take that bucket to your garden bed and you turn the soil up and you dump the little guys in there and they become fertilizer and then they do what? They provide useful waste, a useful function, and they support other systems. Now, people would look at that and say we're wasting that resource. But the reality is this is a creature that in a small body of water produces faster than the predators in that water can be supported with and cannot be controlled. And they have to be controlled by something. If they were in a large body of water, most of them, by the time they were a couple inches long, would have come past a spotted bass or a smallmouth bass or a channel catfish or a blue catfish and experienced the following. Gump. Well, they're gone. We're just changing the way by which they're dispatched. And there is very few things that will fertilize better than fish waste. 
Fish waste is an amazing source of nitrogen. Uh, it's a very safe fertilizer to use. Every year, my grandmother had these rose bushes. These were beautiful rose bushes. Uh, they were the envy of the entire town. They really were. People loved her and wanted to know how she did. She said, I have my secret. Her secret was me. And before me, it was my youngest uncle, right? And before him, it was my father. And before him, it was his older brother, right? And probably before then, it was the old man, because that's how long these rose bushes had been around. Beautiful flowers, beautiful hips. She made rose hip jelly with, and they were all down the one side of the property line out by the road, from one end to the other. And this was the secret. Every year, she'd say, hey, go up to the pond and get me a sunfish for every rose bush. And I would go up there with my little pole and my, my little pieces of worm or bread, and I would catch, and, you know, if they were little, a couple, and if they were some bigger ones, maybe just one. And I would, you know, there was actually 28 of them. I could tell you to this day how many there were. And I'd get, come back, and I would take a little garden trowel, and I would dig a hole just kind of on an angle toward the root system, and I'd stick his little butt in there, and I'd cover him with dirt. And that's what made those rose bushes so phenomenal. And that was it. And it was done every year. And some years she'd ask me to go out and do it in the fall. Never real hard to get a kid to go fishing. So um, there's a lot of things we can do with that. But we have to be broad with what we're going to consider as an aquatic species. If we put in a quarter-acre pond, um, it's probably going to naturally attract bullfrogs. If it doesn't, we'd probably go somewhere and catch some bullfrogs and put them in there and set up a population of, of natural you know, native bullfrogs in our pond. Uh, you got to check with your local regulations. Some places, believe it or not, that would be illegal. Uh, but I leave it up to you to figure that out for yourself. I'll just put it that way. Um, but if we have a population of bullfrogs that we can go out and harvest, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's four or five meals a year, but there's only 365 days a year. And if we start putting in, you know, 12 ducks, 50 rabbits, you know, four or five nights a year that we're going to harvest bullfrogs from the, uh, the pond, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's, uh, three or four times a month that we're going to eat fish from the pond, all of a sudden a lot of our protein requirements start to vanish and go away and we're becoming more and more self-sustaining. And that's really what it's all about with this stuff. Moving on to something else other people I think don't really think about is worms and insects. A lot of people talk about vermicomposting. You know, I'm going to grow worms and feed them waste and then they're going to produce castings and I'll put it in my garden. My thoughts on that, if you want to do that, go nuts. I, I really don't have a problem with it, but... What I've always tried to do is encourage worms in my garden. Then I don't have to do anything. They, they live in there. They don't, you know, worms will not eat anything that's alive. That's a cool thing about them. They eat dead stuff only. So all the organic matter that's laying there dead, they decompose and, and, and accelerate the decomposition process. It produces great waste. They aerate my soil. So like when I put in my new garden beds, one of the first thing I did, uh, and there was cheaper ways to do this, but since there was a local store with bait, is just go get a few dozen night crawlers for each bed and just kind of seed it. Right, I know they'll show up there eventually anyway, but it certainly didn't hurt anything, right? So um, that's one way to do this. But yeah, there is a place for growing worms in more of a worm farm type environment. If we're growing tilapia or catfish or trout, that's a great supplemental feed source, isn't it? Uh, what about our chickens? Throw some worms at your chickens once in a while. They act like you're God when you do that. Uh, ducks will eat worms. So, and then there's other insects we can grow. You can breed crickets. Right? Crickets are great feed animals. Uh, anybody that keeps reptiles, specifically a lot of lizard species, knows that crickets are a great feed animal. Uh, crickets are high in protein. Very high in protein. I'm not going there yet. All right? But crickets can be grown for feeding your chickens or your fish. Uh, especially uh, channel catfish will really tear up uh, crickets. 
Uh, I love crayfish out of the, the fish world, so that kind of walks both lines. It could be a feed source and it can be uh, a protein source. And yes, insects, uh, including things like mealworms, can be uh, a direct protein source. We can actually grow them and consume them directly. I'm not real hip on that, uh, but I'll acknowledge it, and I'll tell you there might be a time where it makes a lot of sense. Uh, next, goats and sheep. I think these are a nice kind of in-between for people that really don't have enough room for cattle. Uh, I will tell you that they are social creatures, both, and they should never be kept as single individuals. They're just not going to be happy. Goats in particular, especially if we get away from dwarf goats, we go to a full-size goat. Uh, I haven't met a goat yet that can't climb a fence. Haven't met a goat yet that sooner or later won't climb a fence. Uh, they are really good at escaping. I haven't noticed the same problem with sheep. Somebody may comment today and say that the sheep have the same problem, that they can get away and climb fences. I've never seen a sheep climb a fence. I've never seen a sheep get away. Uh, so it's up to you what, you know, what, how you want to take that. Uh, but I think both of them are great creatures, uh, good meat sources, especially when uh, slaughtered young. And, you know, this is another thing we can look at. If we had a, a small group of goats and we were uh, breeding maybe one or two goats a year and bringing them up to size for slaughter in that year, um, it's not a ton of meat, but adding it to everything we've already talked about. We also look at you know, producing food and functional byproducts. Um, both can produce milk and goats, particularly, you know, there's dairy breeds of goats for cheese. So that's something else to consider there. Both produce manure, uh, should be composted, but good manure waste sources. Useful functions, uh, they're grazers. So if we use them properly in a system, we can use them to control and, and graze control and could provide basically, uh, a, you know, a, a living lawnmower, so to speak. Uh, and of course, sheep, uh, very useful from a standpoint of being sheared for their wool, uh, spe specifically certain breeds. Goat hide is actually quite useful. Goat leather is actually a great leather. So some goats not so much, but some breeds of goats in particular produce a really supple leather. So there's a lot of things there. I won't go deep into them. They don't fit for me at my present location in its current form. Maybe with some bulldozer activity in the future and a few other things put in, and maybe a couple years down the road, maybe they will work for me. I don't know. I think that most of the other stuff I talked about is where I'm going to spend my time and my effort. The last one I want to bring in, and I put them together because I knew this was going to be an episode that could go long, uh, but they really should be separated, but pigeons and quail. Because uh, they're raised in very, very different ways. But their birds are about the same size. They produce meat and eggs. And both uh, produce eggs that are, that are great little eggs for eating and for cooking with. Uh, and great high-quality protein. I personally like pigeons because I have more experience with them. My uncle uh, kept pigeons in a conventional pigeon coop. And that worked very well for him. The animals were very self-sustaining. He did feed them, but he also let them out. And they did forage for a lot of their own food. Uh, because they're mobile and they can fly away and they generally don't cause problems other than they crap on stuff, uh, they generally don't bother your neighbors. Your neighbors don't generally get upset about your pigeons. If you keep pigeons and you allow them to range on their own and fly away from the coop once they become, you know, once they home to that coop, they're going to come back. Some of them are not going to come back. It's part of keeping them. Some will get shot as pests in somebody's barn. Some of them, many of them, will be consumed by hawks. Hawks will become your mortal enemy as a keeper of pigeons. There's other ways to keep pigeons than a conventional coop, though. They can also be kept in what are called coats, C-O-A-T-E-S, coats. 
Uh, it's a French method, a uh, desert method of keeping pigeons. Actually, it's not, I don't, I think the word is French, but the method is very, very desert. Pigeons are a desert animal. And basically, it looks, uh, these things look like a big version of, uh, uh, what do you call, blue martin. Are, they, are blue martins or what they're called? Those birds, the uh, purple martins. Right, they look like a big version of almost like a purple martin house, and the pigeons just come and go. And the way they use them in the desert for fertilization with these, and this is something I don't know a lot about yet. I'm just learning about it now and seeing does this method work for me, or am I better off like my great uncle Pete with just a coop system? As the birds can come and go as they please, uh, at all times, and but the, the 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 little houses are actually mobile. They're you know built on a pole, and maybe you have a piece of concrete that they stick into, so you can move them. Because they don't like the crap in their own in their own nest, so to speak. So they will discard their waste to the side of wherever they're nesting. They put the butt out and out it comes. I know that's not really great dinner table talk, but it's reality. So if I just put the the uh, the house for them in an area, they'll manure that area. And when I've gotten that area manured to the le level that I want, I simply move it to another area. So pigeons, um, if you like eating dove, you'll like eating pigeon. It's really not much different. And uh, I have routinely shot pigeons when I know they're feral pigeons uh, when we've been dove hunting. Uh, we've been dove hunting and had you know decoys out and doves are dropping in. Occasionally some feral pigeons will come by and we'll shoot them and they're like a great big dove. When they're fully grown, they're a lot tougher than a dove. But if you're breeding your own and you're taking the young right about the time, you know, they call them squab when they're young, uh, they're, as, they're as tender as any dove. And you can get them to a point where uh, they're almost double in yield to a dove and they're still quite tender. Uh, and they're very, very easy to butcher. I have a video uh, that I'll put a link to today on how to clean a dove, uh, where I show you how to clean a dove in 30 seconds. You can do the same thing with a pigeon. It takes a little bit more effort because they're a little bit bigger a bird, a little bit tougher, but basically you're just taking the breast with this method. Uh, but again, this is a, a, a bird that will have a couple young with each uh, clutch and have several clutches a year and a small coop with, let's say, uh, a dozen breeding pairs will produce a lot of young for you and require very little effort. You feed them some, uh, and, and that does require a source of feed. And, and, and the feed is an expense, and it's something you're dependent upon, but they'll do a lot of their own foraging. And we can always plant forage crops for them. We can plant black oil sunflower. It's, it's one thing I think people need to become in touch with when it comes to being sustainable with livestock, is it's actually not as hard as a lot of people make it out to be if we'll accept that, that they need certain things and we need to provide them. So if we grow amaranth, quinoa, and sunflower, and instead of growing it for us, we grow it for a poultry uh, such as a pigeon or a quail, uh, th it will work very well for them. Now, you got to be careful black oil sunflower. I'll tell you guys uh, something that I don't, I don't think a lot of people are aware of. If you feed... Just about any bird, too much black oil sunflower, and you especially see this with chickens, it will cause them to, to like go into like a molting problem. Uh, they'll over molt and they'll, they'll, they'll drop feathers and they become sickly. And I think it's something to do with the oil content that causes this. That doesn't mean you can't feed it to them. It means you can't go out and feed your chicken two big handfuls of black oil sunflower as his main food crop every day. But it can be a supplemental, and as a supplemental feed, it's awesome. Right? 
Uh, it, it's really, really good. Pigeons don't have the problem as much. Uh, my uncle fed quite a bit of black oil sunflower to his pigeons and never had uh, any any molting problems, but he fed them other feed as well. Millet is a great crop for pigeons. Uh, doves, if you can find a dove that you can breed without uh, getting the problem with uh, the you know, federal migratory game bird problems. Uh, but dove and quail will both really do well on millet. Millet's very easy to grow, and I think that kind of that's what I want to finish up with. If you have five acres of land... And you don't try to take everything that you cultivate and make it a direct yield for yourself. If you'll take an acre of that five acres, and it would, this would be difficult for me to do because I don't have five acres of nice flat farmland. But assuming that you did and you grew the right crops on one acre for these animals, what you would find is a lot of the stuff they eat requires no irrigation or very little irrigation and very little work. Um, it doesn't take a lot of effort to grow crimson clover. It grows all over the roadsides around here in Arkansas, all by itself. Uh, in, this, in the summers, or early, late spring, it's beautiful when all the flowers are on it. Right? So if it can grow there, you can cultivate it. Alfalfa is easy to grow. Uh, millet's easy to grow. Amaranth is easy to grow. If, if you start looking at this as more of what it actually does for you from a meat standpoint, you'll be more willing to allocate those resources to the animals. And you can kind of crop share if you want to in there, but I want you to look at it this way. If you went out and planted a field, and at the end of your harvest season, instead of going out there and picking tomatoes and peppers, you picked rabbit carcasses off the plant, you probably wouldn't have a problem with that yield. You'd probably, where do I get my rabbit plants, right? Or where do I get my duck plants? Or where do I get my pigeon or quail plants? It's the same thing. It's, it's okay to allocate some land to produce for your animals. It really is. And in many ways, it doesn't decrease your yield. It increases your yield. Because there's a lot of things that we can grow straight through the winter that the animals can eat that we can't. Grasses grow through winter. We can grow things in winter that can be harvested in spring and fed to rabbits. right? And instead of trying to produce maximum yield out of each animal, if we give them a more varied diet and a more natural diet, we're eating a more natural food source. Yes, if I feed nothing but pellets to my rabbits, I can take a bunny to slaughter in 8 to 12 weeks. But do I really need to? Is it, is it, is it okay if it takes 18? It probably is, especially if I'm only wanting one a week for the table. And maybe I even want to let them get a little bit bigger. Maybe I'm not worried that they're going to get a little bit tougher because maybe I got a brain and I know how to cook. You know, maybe if my rabbit, if I, I let one go up to a full, you know, uh, roaster size, and I want it to be a little bit more tender. Maybe I break the pressure cooker out and I put them in the pressure cooker for five minutes and then I prepare them however I want and I tenderize the meat because I get creative and I don't try to think like I'm trying to get meat from a supermarket. And if we start to think that way and we start to think about, again, what I want to refresh your memory with as I, as I wrap up today are what makes the animal useful. Production of food, yes, but also functional byproducts, useful waste, performs a useful function for us, provides us with entertainment, and supports other systems. If I start to look at a homestead with just a small collection of animals on it, and I try to find animals that maximize those things, I look for animals that take up minimal amount of space, minimal amount of resources, and provide a maximum return, I don't need to be greedy with that system. I can be very generous with that system. I can have animals that have a great quality of life, and yes, some of them eventually will die in a, in a manner by my own hand and be consumed by me. But remember that every living creature on planet Earth has a terminal disease called life. And that includes us. Living is fatal. 
And most people seem attracted to the concept of living anyway, right? But if you think about it, life is fatal. I don't know a single living entity uh, in a physical world anyway, if you stay out of the spiritual world with this, that is immortal. The oldest trees might be thousands of years old, but they still eventually die. They still eventually succumb and they become recycled into the environment. So when we take a rabbit at 12 or 14 or 16 weeks of age and we, we, we do kill it and we eat it, it's part of a cycle and it's okay. And those of you that say to yourself, I'd love to do this, but I just don't think I can, I understand. And maybe you need to look for animals that perform other roles. Maybe you need to just find somebody that would be happy if once, you know, every two months you showed up with a couple cages full of bunnies and handed them over and you gave them 20 bunnies and then you showed up two days later and he gave you 12 butchered rabbits back. Maybe that's a way, and I bet you can find someone to do it. Maybe you can't grow that pot pig and go out there and put a gun to the back of his head and pop him in the head with a 22, which is probably, and then either stick him in the heart or slice his, uh, his, his, his carotid and uh, jugular and bleed him out, which is the right way to do it. That's, that's the best way you can do it for the quality of the meat and the humanity of the animal. When you shoot him in the head, it won't kill him. Not fast. It'll stun him and knock him out. You want to bleed him out after that. Maybe you can't do that. But maybe you can take that 60-pound porker away and have somebody give you, you know, half of the meat back and keep half for themselves. Or maybe you can't do any of that. Maybe you, maybe you're just the person that can't raise these animals that way. But you can still have rabbits and ducks for their eggs, right? You could still have bees for their pollination. You, and maybe you're the person that says, well, I can't do that, but a fish, you know, my wife was never going to be a hunter. Every once in a while she says, maybe I could go wild boar hunting. They're pretty ugly. I could zap one of those, but I know it's not going to happen. But when we go fishing, um, she doesn't want to clean the fish, but she doesn't want to do the work. Right, she has absolutely no problem with me sitting down with a fillet knife, and 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 then later on that night eating it. I just went fishing out on Lake Washita for stripers. We got a, one really nice fish, and we didn't have a lot of action that day. But I put the picture up on Facebook. She said, "I want some fish." Right, so maybe you're that person. So maybe the pond with the catfish and the bass and the sunfish in it, and some crayfish and frog. Maybe you can do that. You know, maybe you're the person that that can take the wildlife. And slaughter it and then raise the domestic stuff for your entertainment and your functional byproducts and useful waste. It's all up to you. See, I, I never get on the air here and tell you what you need to do. But I will tell you this with a, with a stark dose of reality. And it's part of why I mentioned it today. There is a stark reality coming to this country. A stark reality where you're not just going to go down to Kroger and buy beef. Or even if you can, it's going to cost two or three times more effectively what it does today. And protein is a valuable source of nutrition. And even if you're not going to do this now with the intention for slaughter, teaching yourself the husbandry techniques and the sustainable techniques of making these animals part of your system will allow you to do it if you ever need to. And I'm going to tell you flat out, there is a reality that there's going to be a need. There's going to be a need for stuff like this in the future, and it makes sense to get the skill set now. And it also does provide a lot of entertainment and a lot of useful uh, functionality beyond a direct meat relationship. That's why I tried to cover a large variety today. Obviously, uh, it would have to be a cold day in hell before I'd be slaughtering a dog for food. 
It really would. It would have to be an absolute life or death scenario. If it was my dog, I don't know if I could even do it then. So, but I put dogs in the mix because there, there's no food source there, and I, I don't know if anybody doing anything with you know dog care. If you can figure out what to do with husky fur, I think we have a cottage industry because a couple of those guys can produce so much fur in a season it's unbelievable. Um, way more I think than sheep, but they have a functionality. They provide entertainment. They provide security. They're a companion. So we can look at expanding our horizons when we think of the term small livestock. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.